I worked in the uh, publishing industry before uh, I got into this ministry malarkey. Uh, I was a writer. I used to write books. They were business and legal type books, mind you. I wasn't churning out Harry Potter or something like that. I co-authored the very first book on a, in Australia on the goods and services tax. Thank you very much. It's uh, opened up lots of conversations since then. Not really, actually, at all. <laughs> um, so, of course, I have a magic pen. I've got a magic pen. Why wouldn't you? It's a fountain pen, obviously, but not one of those ye oldie worldy gold kind of ones. It's sleek barrel, German-made, Lamy fountain pen. It's matte black in colour because distinctive writing needs a distinguished pen. That's my view on these things. And here's how I know it's magic. Whenever I lose it, I cannot get anything done until I find it again. It has this magic power of productivity about it. And if I lose it, I can't focus on anything at all until I recover it. I must get it back. And frankly, that's why I will never bring it to church, because somebody here will borrow it, which, of course, is the Christian word for stealing. And if that happens, I'm quite sure I will never, ever get anything done ever again. Now, honestly, it's not really magic. Just burst the bubble there. It's just my favorite pen, and I really like it. If I did lose it, I suppose I would work out a way to move on and move forward. But what if I lost something really dear to me? I wonder if you ever get those text messages from the police when a person goes missing. It's concerning, isn't it? Where that dearly loved relative, whether it's a young kid or a confused older person, um, where they've ended up and we just don't know. We can't rest until they're found because lost things bother us greatly. We would all agree. Now, could it be, friends, that people are lost? Could that be true? Not merely missing, soon to be returned, but lost in life and, in fact, lost in eternity because they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour. What if we really believe that people are lost without Christ? That's the question we're thinking through today. Uh, it's our third week in this little series we've called The Truth Is, in which we're contemplating seven vital gospel truths and the response they compel from us. And we're just trying to narrow that gap between what we say we believe and what we do. If the truth is that people are lost without Christ, what response does that compel from us? And so firstly today, we investigate the problem that I've just stated, that people are lost without Christ. That's the problem. It's the first thing. People are lost without him. But what does that mean? Because it's not as obvious as a lost pen or a runaway relative, is it? When we turn to the Gospel of Luke, it's very famous for riffing on this idea of lostness. You might remember there are three parables in Luke chapter 15 that build upon each other. There's a shepherd searching for a lost sheep. There's a woman who searches carefully for a lost coin, another item of great value. And the chapter intensifies with the parable of the lost son, climaxing with the open arms of the father who welcomes back his wayward boy. You might also remember Jesus' famous words to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. He said, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save that which was lost. Now, I don't think the scriptures really care about lost coins or lost sheep for that matter. They're just metaphors for people, for lost people. But they do show us that God cares about people who have wandered away from him, people who have become estranged from him, people who rather than yearn for him, yawn indifferently instead, or people whose lives are set just on a trajectory that is running oppositely from him. 
Now, when I say lost, that doesn't equal stupid. It doesn't equal bad. When I say lost, I'm not saying you're an idiot. I'm confident that you are smarter than me. It's not about intelligence. And I'm not saying you're a bad person when I say lost either. If you had access to all my dark thoughts and petty jealousies, you'd be convinced of that too. Like my lustful, covetous eyes, Sailor's Bay Road, what a garden of temptation it is. So many Audis and Porsches, and I love Audis and Porsches. I see a Porsche and I think to myself, I would like to drive that. And then I see an Audi and I think, I would like to drive that. And then I see one of those big Ford Rangers and I think, I would like to drive that. And then I see a Tesla and I think, I would like to drive my big Ford Ranger right over the top of that. <laughs> see, dark thoughts, friends. <laughs> Betty jealousies. But, it, but in truth, they are dark. And so I'm sure you're a better person than me. So when I'm talking about lost... I'm not a moral term in the first place. It's about estrangement from God and his goodness. And that plays itself out in, in different ways, doesn't it? You know, there are folks, um, doubtless known to us, whose lives are in free fall. You know, they just seem in a mess. They've got themselves into situations or relationships or habits that are so clearly damaging. And you can almost see them wandering helplessly through the calamities of life. You might even be one of them here tonight. It's like... Um, when you're at the beach and you don't see that wave hit you or you just mistime it and it throws you around so violently that for a moment you don't even know which way is the right way up. There's just an undisguisedness about some people's lostness in life that is mirrored in their estrangement from God. Now last week uh, I had the chance to put words around ideas that you guys gave me about St Mark's I said we're wholeheartedly for Jesus in a Northbridge that knows him. But the thing about the lostness in Northbridge folks is that any lostness from God is usually disguised by an outward life that looks pretty well together. I mean, probably have their working life together and their family life together, their social life together, their finances might be sound, their community involvement might be impressive. But all that can mask a lostness from God, a lack of relationship with him, a shortage of care for his ways and knowing him as maker and father. And you might be sitting there tonight thinking, actually, that's me. That's me. That um, outward success or all the signs of prosperity really mark or mask an estrangement from the one who made me and the one who knows me and the one who says that he loves me. And there are, of course, telltale signs um, like the desperation people might feel when some of those things, whether it's family or career or finances, start to unravel, or perhaps it's just in the restless way people try to find ultimate meaning and significance and identity from things which just were never designed to carry such a burden. You know, when the things we thought would give us lasting happiness or satisfaction or completeness just don't. But the real problem with being lost from God is not that we might be living a damaging or self-destructive life or even if things look good at surface level, that there's a restlessness or an emptiness in our soul. The real problem is that our estrangement from God in this life will be met with estrangement for eternity and that'll be far worse. And I know that it's distasteful to talk about judgment, about being cut off from relationship with the one who made us and knows us and loves us and who has given us every good thing. That is distasteful, isn't it? 
And it's even further distasteful that in addition to being eternally estranged from God, we are, might be due righteous punishment that our indifference or outright rebellion towards God justly deserved. But that is what lost means in the Bible. Present estrangement, regardless of outward appearances and future judgment. And when you look at it in all sobriety, it, you'd have to say, man, that is a problem, isn't it? It really is. It's so much of a problem that we are really hopeful for a solution. And uh, the solution, this is the second thing for tonight, is the gospel. No surprises there from me. Um, you might remember Jesus when he spoke about salvation coming to the house of Zacchaeus, when he came to the house of Zacchaeus, salvation in the gospel. But there in, uh, in Acts chapter 4, we see in a number of striking ways how the gospel of Jesus is the distinctive solution to this problem of being lost without Christ. Now, I reckon we all have our own solutions when someone or even ourselves um, are unwell. When somebody we, you know, who's close to us are unwell, we've got our little go-to solutions, don't we? Someone told me recently that when you have a virus, you need to steam ginger and brown sugar for half an hour. I thought that sounds like a great dipping sauce for spring rolls. I don't know what it's going to do for my virus. When I, when I used to run youth camps, I had the, the, the same solution. Whenever any kid came to me for first aid, I would just say, you need to drink more water and eat more fruit. You got a headache? Well, you got to drink more water and eat more fruit. You got a cold? Well, the answer is water and fruit. You can't find your towel? You wouldn't believe it, but it's water and fruit. That is the solution. And then uh, they, they, <laughs> they took me off being the first aid officer. <laughs> I think that was a good idea. Uh, in our household, it's a bit of a joke, actually. Uh, my darling wife, Carolyn, she thinks Vicks Vaporub is the solution to all ills. She's even heard that if you rub it on your feet, like it's especially effective. So we think that's funny. Because Vicks Vaporub, it's no good for a broken arm, is it? Much less a broken heart. But water and fruit and Vicks just don't work. So what is so distinctive about the gospel and how does it work? Four quick things from Acts chapter 4. Number one, it's a unique message. A unique message that culminates in the resurrection of Jesus. The background to Acts chapter 4 is the miraculous healing of a man who had been crippled from birth. Crippled for over 40 years who was stunningly healed by the apostles Peter and John. And when Peter seizes the opportunity to preach the gospel, it gets under the skin of the temple guard and the Sadducees. They were the wealthy kind of ruling religious class in Israel. They were in cahoots with the Romans. They didn't like these educated proclaimers of the message and they didn't like the growing popularity of the message either. In verse 4, have a look. The number of male believers alone has grown to 5,000 up from 3,000 just two chapters earlier. But it's not just they were annoyed at unauthorized preaching by unprofessional preachers. The content of the message disturbed them, verse 2, because they were preaching, you could be resurrected from the dead in Jesus. And that was unique. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, even though they were religious. Like many folks in our day, don't believe in life beyond the grave. But even amongst religious folks, this was unique. Life after death was available in Jesus, in what he has done for us, when he lived a perfect life among us, the life we couldn't live, when he died the death that we deserve and then rose again in victory over sin, death and the devil. Other religions might promise life, 
But it almost always depends on what humans do, what we do. But this was different. They were claiming resurrection and life in Jesus. That's the key phrase. Because of what he has done for us, not what we can do for him. Now that, friends, is a unique message. It was, furthermore, an exclusive claim. When the religious officials begin to question Peter or John, they say, by what power or what name did you heal this crippled man? And I wonder if when you heard Jane read it out, if you noted the repetition of the phrase, in what name? In what name? And Peter answers with great clarity. It's the name of Jesus, the one and only. Let's look at his words in verse 10. Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Down in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, friends, I don't think he could be any clearer. What name? Well, Jesus. Jesus who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, remember, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. That's his name, the only one by which you can be saved. And in the original language, saved and healed, it's the same word. And so we're being told that this outward extraordinary miracle is meant to point to an inward salvation that you can't see quite as easily. He's not a way to God this name of Jesus. He's the only way to God. He's not just a prophet or a miracle worker or a really good guy or an example of sacrificial love or a great moral teacher. He is the exclusive way to be rescued from our lostness, estrangement and judgment and brought back into right standing and friendship with God. No other name. We've just sung it. No one else. Can you believe that? And if you're worried that it sounds arrogantly exclusive, and I think it does sound arrogantly exclusive in our culture, I want you to see just how inclusive Peter says that Jesus' solution of salvation for our lostness really is. Verse 10, he wants the rulers and the elders of Israel to know it. But in verse 10, he wants all the people of of God back then to hear it. But have a look at verse 12. There is no other name given to mankind in general, which provides salvation. No other name under heaven. The unique gospel that culminates in the resurrection is an exclusive claim to salvation. No other name but Jesus. But it is offered inclusively to all the people of the world. So you have a unique message. You have an exclusive claim to salvation. Thirdly, there's an urgency to its proclamation. And you can see that in verses 13 to 22 when the emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Jewish parliament, produce a gag order on the apostles, Peter and John. They effectively said, we don't know who you are. We don't know how you've done this healing. We need you to shut up about it. They couldn't deny it. They wouldn't acknowledge it, but they wanted to end it. And so they repeatedly tried to get them to stop. But Peter and John knew there was an urgency about this message. There was an unstoppability to it. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Like, we just can't. We're going to obey God, not you. They just knew the message is too great to stop talking about it. And what's more, people keep believing it. It might encourage you to know or to be reminded that in Africa, 
in South America, right across the Asian continent. The gospel is spreading like wildfire this very day. You know, in China, the number of Christians is soaring, especially in the independent house church movement. There are 100 million Christians there. I mean, wrap your head around that, 100 million Christians in China, despite severe government persecution. You know, the Chinese Communist Party are so worried about it, they've unveiled a 10-year plan to rewrite the Bible itself to make it compatible with Chinese communism. Uh, as if they were the first people to try to rewrite the Bible or mess with that. Like, good luck. That won't work. There are pastors who are getting fined and imprisoned this very day. And yet all across the world, and certainly in China, the gospel is being believed by people in their thousands. That should give us some encouragement. But the reason why we ought not to give up in Northbridge, you know, our antagonistic post-Christian culture is the fourth part of the gospel solution that's worth remembering this afternoon and that is it has the backing of the sovereign God of the universe and you, you, you hear this clearly when the apostles return to their own people in verses 23 and begin praying they call upon God's sovereignty in creation sovereign Lord you made the heavens and the earth and the wild sea verse 24 They call upon God's sovereignty over the nations and the kings of the world in verses 25 and 26. And then they recall God's sovereign control over all the villains and the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 28, they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Right, The crucifixion of God wasn't like a moment when God suddenly lost control and didn't know what was happening. They did what God had decided beforehand should happen. And so God's sovereign control over all things from creation to the crucifixion forms the basis for the believer's prayer that God might enable them to speak this message with great boldness and even accompany it with the miraculous, a prayer which was answered almost immediately. The lostness of people without Christ is an acute problem. Even though it looks like people in Northbridge and whatever nearby suburb you live in have got everything going for them. But the solution is as distinctive as it is effective. It's a unique message of resurrection and life in Jesus, the one and only Saviour. It's a message with urgent application, but a message with the backing of the sovereign God of all things. You see, friends, it seems to me the truth is not only that people are lost without Christ, but they can be found and rescued and saved through the gospel of Christ. Well, what about that important question? What response does this truth, this truth compel from us? How might we respond to the truth that people are lost without Jesus? Well, let me firstly say, if you're sitting there in those rather uncomfortable pews thinking to yourself, you know, I think I'm lost I want you to say, I want you to open your heart to that and lean into it. Today would be a very good day to have a conversation. Maybe it's the Christian friend or the Christian person sitting right next to you. Maybe it's uh, one of the people at the end of the service who'll be standing down the front here ready to pray. It'd be good to have a conversation. But beyond that, with our money, can I be straight about it? There is nothing more worthy of our coin than the mission of getting the gospel out there. And so one of the things I get to do is to ask you, and also to do myself, to give generously, sacrificially and joyfully to the mission partners we support here at St. Mark's. 
At the moment, we're still uh, a few mission partners behind in our overall giving, but can I say our mission partners are heroic. What they sacrifice to be where they are is often enormous. So the ground might be fertile in Africa, but that doesn't mean it's an easy work, and especially when resources are so few. And do you think that teaching scripture in southwestern Sydney is an easy job? Or how about learning the Japanese language and culture like the Roti is in Japan? That feels like painfully slow work to me. I think our mission partners are heroic. And I think the gospel is distinctive and effective. And I think that relatively we are very well off. I'm not going to say any more about money for now because we've got a whole week devoted to it in a few weeks coming up. I'll know if you miss it, okay? But mission demands our money, doesn't it? But, you know, there's even better news, which is that all of us can be involved in the mission of the gospel, even if we never leave our suburb, even if we don't have a dollar to our name. If you live anywhere in Sydney, you don't have to go to the world to be on mission because the world has actually come to us, whatever suburb we live in. And it doesn't even need to be people from different kind of cultural or ethnic backgrounds, just people who are estranged from the God who made them and loves them and knows them, people who haven't heard or received the good news in the gospel of Jesus. You know, I am deeply concerned about the 6,500 people who live in Northbridge. It it sears my conscience, especially the 1,000 who identify as Anglicans but who seem to have very little interest in Jesus. I would like you to be concerned for them too even if you don't live in Northbridge, at the very least to care about them and to pray about them. But of course the good news is you can do that for others within your orbit or who live in your nearby suburb. Of course the truth is some people find it easier to talk about Jesus. Some people are just more naturally gifted. Some people just find conversation more straightforward. There are some people who just like talking more, aren't there? Personally, I don't find it all that easy. I don't find it super enjoyable and often it feels awkward. But I can't give up and we can't give up if the truth is the people are lost without him. So let's press on. Here are some possible ways you might want to get started. You turn up to work, you turn up to class, you turn up to the community group or club Monday morning. Question was asked, how is your weekend? Right? You've got a decision to make in that very moment, don't you? You could say, I had a great time playing tennis or whatever it is you've done. Or you could just say, I went to church and it was okay. It actually depends how you inflect that word okay. It was okay. It was okay. (laughs) It was okay. You just float it, right, that you went to church. And you just see what happens. Sometimes you'll get a nibble. Sometimes you'll get a bite. And when you do, you just supply more information. Maybe you read a Bible or a Bible storybook. Um, with kids or grandkids when they're staying over with you. Maybe you do that at breakfast or before bed every now and again. You just ask them if they have any questions. Or maybe you and another friend, let's call her Karen, um, you like walking in the morning around the streets, the leafy streets, and you've realised that actually there are a number of people in your little patch of dirt who also like walking so you and Karen decide to walk together you invite the other people to walk with you because you think when it comes to walking more people must equal more fun but as you're all walking it becomes clear that you and Karen know each other from somewhere and so the question is asked how do you and Karen know each other you say well of course we're in home group together and then what's the next question going to be what is home group and on it goes 
you invite a friend to a gingerbread house-making event, even if you don't like gingerbread. You host Christmas drinks for your neighbours or your unit block. You might be able to invite them to come along to Christmas at St Mark's. We'd love to have them. You might rearrange your Tuesday mornings, as some people here do, in order to teach scripture at the fine academic institution that is the Northbridge Public School. Or you might rearrange your Friday mornings to help out with mainly music where relationships are formed, where conversations arise, where invitations are extended. And you think about each of those cases, it just sort of happens kind of organically, hopefully naturally, where you live, where you play, where you work. happens relationally through personal contact. Whether or not it happens via formal church programs, it just involves bringing the word of God in conversation, and that's without traveling to any grand new frontier, just in Northbridge or whatever nearby suburb you reside in. It's making the most of what's already around you. And I want to say, I think it's worth trying that. And I'm trying that. Well, as we finish, friends, there is a big difference, isn't there, between a lost pen, even a distinctive one, and a lost person. But whether or not people look lost, if someone is estranged from God now and has a bleaker future ahead, that really is a weighty and signal problem. And I don't think it's glib or flippant to say that the gospel of Jesus as unique, as urgent and as effective as that message is, really is the solution to the problem of lostness. So if the truth is that people are lost without Christ, can you direct your money and your prayers and your cares, and your conversations to that message, to that solution, and to that end. It seems to me that that is a response that this truth compels. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognise without any sense of moral superiority that there are many people around us who are lost. And you have placed us within their midst to perhaps share your unique, effective and urgent gospel message that involves life beyond the grave, friendship with you, a relationship with you as maker and as father. So would you move in each of our hearts so that our money and our cares and our prayers and our conversations might be directed towards that end? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.